to see you all. We're sorry, um, trying to get our services balanced a little bit. The, the first service is so packed, so we're trying to get some people to um, come to our second service. So if you were thinking about going to the first service, stop thinking about that. <laughs> we um, really are overflowing, but pray, pray because that, that's what we're here for. We're here to advance the gospel, that's, and that's what God's doing, and he does that for his glory. He does it in answer to prayer. He does it by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he delights to bring glory to himself. He's calling people to himself, but then he's growing his church. And it's really exciting. I mean, last week there were five people made professions of faith. This morning, two people, two people at the door said, hey, could I, could I borrow this Bible this week? And I said, no, you can't, but you could keep it. And people are coming and learning. And if you're new with us, we welcome you. We just uh, are so happy that you're here, but we believe the Bible's the word of God, so I want to invite you to turn in your Bible to the book of Romans chapter 4 this morning. The book of Romans has been used by the Lord throughout the ages to strengthen, establish, revive, and encourage so many people. If you have never studied the book of Romans, we welcome you. If you're just getting started, all of our messages are available online, so you can go back and do catch-up. Um, if you're looking to share the gospel with friends, a number of people said to me last week, oh, that passage is perfect. I wish my unbelieving friend could have heard that. We can make CDs for you. Sometimes people listen to it in their car, or you can refer them to just pick it up online and get a cup of coffee, open their Bible, and just follow along and study the scriptures with us. It's really a blessing to See how God's awakening within people a desire to hear his word and to learn the truth about how to have a relationship with God. And that's what we talked about last week. We talked about how do you get right with God? I mean, at the end of the day, that's really important. How do you get right with God? And we saw that the apostle Paul revealed to us that the way to get right with God is by his grace through faith. It's not by works. Now, I want you to think about as he's writing this, He's writing it in the backdrop of Jewish people, not all of them, but many who believe that you get right with God by being a good person. And this is probably the most predominant mindset of Americans, is that you get right with God by being good. And if you don't think that's true, ask your friends. I just did this last night. I asked a couple at a wedding where I um, did the service. They said, oh, that was so helpful. Now, we go to the Catholic Church, um, but what about this? And so I said, well, let me ask you a question. If God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? The guy says, because I gave my life to Christ. His wife says, because I try my very best and I'm a good person. And nine times out of 10, that's what I hear from people. I try my very best. So we saw last week, the Bible says, we get right with God through faith in Jesus Christ because he died for us, not by works. And then Paul said, secondly, Getting right with God is equally available to Jews and Gentiles. Because the Gentiles thought that they had a lock on this. Hey, this is for us. We're, we're the, the in kids. And so I can anticipate that when Paul made these statements, Jewish people were going, yeah, well, that's fine, buddy. I'm happy for you that that's what you believe. But that's not what the Bible teaches. And so the end of chapter 4, or the end of chapter 3, Paul says, do we nullify the law through faith? No, he says, on the contrary, we actually establish the law. So... As we read through chapter 4 this morning, I want you to think about what Paul's doing here. He's simply trying to do this. He's simply trying to say, look, getting right with God has always been by grace through faith. 
That's what the Old Testament teaches. And getting right with God is equally available to Jews and Gentiles. That's what the Old Testament teaches. So, this morning, I want to encourage you to take notes, follow along. The first thing we're going to look at is verses 1 through 8, where Paul's going to reinforce this idea. The Old Testament teaches that sinners have always been right with God by grace through faith. Now, as we read this, I want you to think about this. I often ask Christians, how did people get saved in the Old Testament? And, and it's remarkable how many Christians will say, well, by, by, you know, the sacrifices, by keeping the law. And I go, really? So in the Old Testament, you got right with God by your performance. But in the New Testament, it's by grace through faith in Christ. Or has it always been that the only way to get right with God is through his grace, apart from any works, as I put my faith in him providing a sacrifice for my sins. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at verses 1 through 8. The Old Testament teaches that sinners get right with God through faith. Now, Jewish people had several heroes. Abraham, obviously, he's, he's the father of their faith, right? Father Abraham. And they sang the song a little different. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham, and we are all of them, and you are not, because you are Gentiles. Now, they did welcome Gentiles. You've got to come our way. You've got to get circumcised. And so what Paul's going to teach in this chapter is that, look, Abraham and King David, your hero, King David, the Messiah's founding king, one of the descendants of David, is going to reign forever. He got right with God through grace and through faith, not by work. So let's pray, and then we'll look. Father, thank you so much that your word is clear, and that as we study it, the Holy Spirit will, will move in our lives. And as believers, we want to grow in our grasp of the gospel. We want to grasp what it means to believe in the Lord and to be saved by grace, and then learn how to communicate it to our children, our friends, our loved ones. And I pray, Father, that our hearts will be encouraged today as we learn what it looks like to have biblical faith in a God who is full of mercy and saves us by grace alone. And we ask that you will be glorified. Call your elect to yourself. Open our eyes, Lord, and bring glory to Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Now, if you're a believer and you go, oh, I already know that I'm saved by grace through faith. One of the things you could look at in this chapter is it's, it's helpful for you to learn how to witness to Jewish people. Because Jewish people don't accept the New Testament. And so you can see here from the Old Testament that the same program of salvation by grace through faith was taught. So let's look at verse 1. Paul says, what shall we say then? Oh, there we go. Yeah, what shall we say then that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? So the Jews are like, that's not how you got saved in the Old Testament. Paul goes, well, let's look at Abraham. For if Abraham was justified, and remember we said that's what it means to get right with God when he declares you righteous. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But, Paul says, not before God because he wasn't justified by works. Oh yeah? Well then how did Abraham get right with God? So Paul quotes from Genesis. He says, what does the scripture say? And once you underline that phrase in your Bible, what does the scripture say? Never forget that phrase. Because at the end of the day, when it comes to everything you believe about God and the Christian faith, you and I ought to finally say, what does the scripture say? Not, well, what does my church believe? Or 
I like to think that, you know, we all come back as reincarnation, or, or my God would not put anyone in hell. At the end of the day, would to God that everyone in America would simply say, what does the scripture say? What do I believe about abortion? What do I believe about heaven? What do I believe about hell? What do I believe about salvation? What does the scripture say? If we would just adhere to that, we would save ourselves from thousands of problems. So Paul said, let me tell you what the Bible says. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now think about that phrase, it was credited to him. What, what do you mean it was credited to him? Is that, is that something that just comes as a, as a gift? And the answer is, exactly. When God credits something to you, it's not something that you earned. It's not something that you deserve. It's a gift. In fact, Paul says it this way in verse 4. To the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but is what is due. So it's Friday. It's payday, right? You come to the boss. You put in a hard week's work. He has your paycheck there, and he says, you know, I'm going to do you a favor. I'm going to throw some grace to you. Here's your paycheck. And you go, no, no, you snatch that. No, no, this is your last day, obviously. But you go, no, no, no. You're not doing me any favors by paying me. You're giving me what I earned. This is what is due to me. But I want to paint a different scenario. Suppose you got sick on Sunday night, and you couldn't come in Monday morning or Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday. And you had no comp time, no sick time, and no vacation time left. And the company policy is if you don't work, you don't get paid. If the boss then says to you on that Friday, here's your paycheck anyway, I'm going to give it to you as a gift by my grace, even though you didn't earn it, then you go, okay, I get it. So let's look at verse 5. Verse 5 actually says it this way. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So when I stand before God, I'm not going to go, God, let me into heaven. I earned it. Instead, like Abraham, I'm going to say, Lord, I'm ungodly. I don't deserve to go to heaven. But you told me if I put my faith in Christ, you will credit it to me for righteousness. And so what we're learning is that believing is fundamentally the opposite of working. Working is relying on your capabilities, and you're going, well, I hope I'm good enough to get to heaven, whereas believing is completely relying on God. Working involves doing. Believing involves receiving as a gift. Working can result in boasting. If, if I could get to heaven by going, I'm a pastor. You should let me into heaven. Then it would be absolutely opposite of receiving God's grace. But notice that there's something that qualifies you to receive this gift. The Bible says you believe in him who justifies the ungodly. And that's where you and I have to wrestle because you have to ask yourself a question. Do you believe that about yourself? You're like, I know some very ungodly people. Filthy animals, use drugs, cheat on their spouse. They're so ungodly. The Bible says you and I are ungodly. You might be a religious ungodly person or an irreligious ungodly person, but you and I are ungodly. God doesn't credit righteousness to self-righteous people. He credits righteousness to sinners. And you're going, really? You're going, well, what about David? David was a man after God's own heart. Surely he earned his salvation. And Paul goes, all right, well, let's look at David, verse 6. 
He says, just as David also. He goes, I'm telling you, sinners are saved by grace through faith. That's how Abraham got saved. And then he says, what about David? Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness. See, God credits it to you, and it's a blessing, okay? And it's apart from works. Now, this is what's really, really cool about this passage. I mean, think about this. The first thing that we find out is this, that to be credited with righteousness is another way of simply learning that your sins are forgiven. Look at verse 7. This is what the scripture says. See the quotes? This is Psalm 32, Old Testament. Blessed are those whose sins are forgiven. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord won't take into account. So Paul's going, really? You think David, you think David got right with God because he was a good person? That's not what David said. David said, I am so happy, I am so blessed because God has forgiven my sins. He's covered them and he won't take them into an account. Now, one day the Bible says you and I are going to stand before God and all of our deeds will be judged. And that's scary. Every secret thing that no one else knows about, every shameful thought and action and activity, our pride, our selfishness, our lust, all of those things are going to be brought before God. And you're really going to stand before him and go, well, you should let me in, God, because I'm a good person. But God says, through the gospel, when you believe in Christ and you trust that what he did was satisfying to God, your sins are forgiven, your sins are covered, and your sins the Lord won't take into account. I like that, do you? I love that. I am very grateful for that. And this is why the Bible describes it as a blessed condition. The idea is that if you believe that, it should bring you happiness because it's undeserved and unexpected. How blessed is the person whose boss pays him when he doesn't work? How much more blessed is it when a sinner realizes that because Jesus died for me, God will completely forgive me and credit me with his righteousness? And that's why Christians can be rejoicing in every circumstance. Because, yeah, I might lose my job. I, li- I might lose my health. I might lose my kids. I might lose my life. But I'm not going to lose my soul. Because blessed are those whose sins are forgiven. That's remarkable. That's a joy. And if, and if you're sad this morning, I-, I understand. Life is full of sorrows. But we have one thing that, that's unshakable. We're always blessed in that Christ has forgiven us for our sins. So, The first thing that we see is that the Old Testament teaches sinners are saved by grace through faith. Abraham was, David was. Now, in verses 9 through 16, the second main point that Paul's going to teach here is is simply this, that the Old Testament also teaches that getting right with God is equally available to Jews and Gentiles. Now, that's really, sometimes when we read things in the Bible, we're like, nobody's arguing about that today, right? Nobody's, you know, it's not like, you and I are going, gee, I wish I could get to heaven. I wish I was a Jew. But yet, this idea of who's going to heaven, people are talking about that, right? And the idea of exclusivity, who's in and who's out. You know, you've left the mother church. You're out. You're off the team. You have to come through the church to get to God. Oh, really? Now, sometimes people will, will poke that at, at evangelical Christians. They'll say, you guys are so narrow-minded and bigoted. 
You think your way is the only way? You're telling us that Jesus is the only way to get to heaven? How dare you be so proud and arrogant? I'm going to hold up here. Number one, don't shoot the messenger. I didn't say it. Christianity is both exclusive and all-inclusive. It's exclusive in this respect. Jesus said, no one comes to God but through me. So, yeah, we do believe that. We do believe that apart from Christ and faith in Christ and his sacrifice, no one will ever go to heaven. Jesus said that. But we also believe that it's completely all-inclusive in that anyone's welcome at the cross. Red and yellow, black and white, religious or irreligious, you are welcome to come to Christ and be saved by grace. But remember, when Paul was writing this, the Jews felt that they had this exclusive privilege. So Paul's trying to teach them that the Old Testament doesn't teach that. But the means by which he teaches it is is rather fascinating. He says, look, it's equally available to all, and I'll prove it by referring to Abraham's circumcision. And you're going, what? What would Abraham's circumcision have to do with the idea that salvation's equally available to all? Well, let's let's start in verse 9. Is this blessing of getting right with God on circumcised people or uncircumcised also? Now, in this context, Paul means by that, is this blessing only for Jews or for non-Jews? For he says, we said faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. So how did Abraham get this blessing? Paul says, how was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. So he goes, think about this. Abraham was a Gentile when he got right with God. He put his faith in God, and he was forgiven, and God credited him righteousness. Paul goes, that happened before he ever got circumcised, before he began to be the father of the the Jewish race, right? So let's keep reading. Now now watch this. Paul goes, so think about that. If, If he was justified before... He was circumcised. Let's let's move on to verse 11. It says, Then he received the sign of circumcision. The sign of circumcision, he says, that's just a seal. It's just a symbol. It's just a picture of the righteousness of his faith, which he had while uncircumcised. Now, this is really important, and I'll tell you why. Nobody worries about who's circumcised anymore, except possibly for health issues, but we're not going around like, am I going to go to heaven if I went... No, but, but you know what people are talking about today? It's baptism, right? <gasps> Will you baptize my infant? Or you're not baptized, you're not going to go to heaven. See, people today have the same fundamental misunderstanding about baptism that Jews had about circumcision. Paul's point is, circumcision does not get you to heaven. It's just a sign of the righteousness of the faith that you have. So in the same way, if you're new to our church and maybe you were told your babies need to be baptized or they're not going to go to heaven. Just whoever told you that, just go back and say, where's that in the Bible? Because baptism is just a public sign of faith. Somebody who, who just got saved last week went out to lunch with him and he said to me, now I was baptized as a baby. And I said, well, was it a sign of the faith that you had? No. He says, well, then I'm ready to get baptized again. I said, great, I'll let you know. Okay. So, Paul says, look, Abraham received circumcision after he was a believer. 
so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised. That's verse 11. That righteousness might be credited to them. So if you're going, I want to be one of Abraham's sons because God promised blessing to Abraham and his descendants. Can I be one of his descendants? If you're a Gentile, the Old Testament says, sure. You can come because he was, he was saved before he was circumcised. Then the Jewish person says, yeah, but I want him to be my father. See, so notice the phrase. He's the father of us all in verse 11. The father of Gentiles. And then in verse 12, but he's also the father of Jews. And the father of circumcision to those who are not only of the circumcision, but also following the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. So, so again, think of a Jewish person. We're the only way. And you have to be circumcised. And, and the Old Testament says, no, you don't. You can get right with God without being circumcised. Abraham got right with God when he wasn't circumcised. But then the Jewish people are going, yeah, well, we're right with God because we're circumcised. And Paul goes, no, you're not. You're not right with God because you were circumcised. You get right with God when you follow in the steps of the faith of Abraham. And in the same way, there are so many Americans today, oh, I go to the Methodist church, the Lutheran church, the Catholic church, I'm Methobacterian. And they think that they get right with God by their religion. And that's the whole point. Your baptism and your religion doesn't make you right with God. It's faith in Christ alone. And Paul closes this section with, with, with a really interesting argument. Because getting right with God is something that God promised. Okay? When Adam and Eve sinned originally, the whole world was, was in trouble. Right? The whole world had fallen under a curse. The whole world deserved to go to hell. And so our human inability to keep God's law shows us that if we're going to receive these promises from God, it has to be by grace. It has to be by faith because I can't earn it. One commentator said this, once again, Paul's dark estimate of human potential surfaces. And so what Paul's going to show us in these next couple verses is the only way to get right with God is by believing his promises because if you wanted to get right with God by being good, you'll never do it. It just won't happen. In fact, what will happen is you'll be punished for not keeping his laws. When I was a student at Cairn years ago, we used to call it Philadelphia College of Bible. Then we called it Philadelphia Biblical University. Now we call it Cairn. But when it was Philadelphia College of Bible, one of my classmates said, my dad made a promise to me. He said he'll give me a horse. What a wonderful promise. On one condition, I had to memorize the book of 1 John. And you're like, what? That's reasonable. That's, in fact, I think that's a pretty good deal. Kids, if, if you can talk your parents into that, I think that's a pretty good deal, right? It's only maybe, you know, 100 verses and probably take you a few years, but that's a pretty good deal. But then she said this, and my dad said, he'll, he'll buy me a house, like a horse or a house. What do you got to do for the house? You got to memorize the New Testament. Ooh, pretty unlikely unless you're Jack Van Impey, right? So, so if God offers to you to forgive your sins and he makes this promise, I'll bless you. You'll inherit my kingdom forever. But here's the condition. You got to keep my law perfectly. It's not going to happen. So look how Paul words it this way. Let's, let's move to the next slide. He says, for the promise to Abraham, this promise of forgiveness, this promise of blessing, this promise of eternal life, it, and that he would be the heir of the world, it wasn't through the law. 
God didn't say, hey, I'll give you this if you keep the law. He says it was a promise that came through faith. Verse 14, for if those who are of the law are heirs, in other words, if God says, I'll give you the inheritance if you keep my law, it says faith is made void and the promise is nullified. You're not going to get that promise, and here's why. For the law brings wrath. You get it? If God says, I'll give you a blessing if you keep my law perfectly, you're not going to get that blessing. You're going to get his judgment. You go, I don't want that. I don't either. And that's the remarkable thing about the grace of God. So I want us to go back, though, to a phrase for those of you that are studying the Bible and going a little bit deeper. There's a phrase that I want to just touch on briefly for a moment because it's very interesting. Look at verse 13 and think back to when God first called Abraham. He said to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to lead you to the promised land, and I'm going to make you a blessing. But look at this verse. It says the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world. And I read that over and over for years until one day I was like, wait a minute. God never promised Abraham that he would be the heir of the world. He promised him that he would be the heir of the promised land. You know, Israel. And I'm going, how did Paul go from the promised land to the whole world? Right? I mean, that'd be like somebody saying, when my dad dies, he's going to leave me an acre. Versus, when my dad dies, he's going to leave me the United States. You're like, so, so, in doing some study, it seems, and, and this is biblical, that Jews began to, to do some reasoning with the Old Testament. If God promised the promised land and that the whole world would be blessed through Abraham, then therefore God was really promising him one day that he would inherit the whole world. And we know this from extra-biblical literature. I want to read... Two quotes real quick. In the book of Jubilee, this is not an inspired book. It was written during the intertestamental time, but this is what Jewish people had written about Abraham. May God strengthen you and bless you, and may you inherit the whole earth. That's Jubilee 22. And then in Jubilee 32, the Jews said this about Abraham. They said, after that, the Jews and Abraham will get possession of the whole earth and inherit it forever. But if you go back and you read the Old Testament carefully, you go, you know, the Old Testament, that's what, that's what people began to believe. So God said, Abraham, I'm going to give you the promised land. But by the time the psalmist wrote, he said, God's son David, the Messiah, the Lord said to him, ask me and I'll give you all the nations as your inheritance. You're going to reign and rule over the whole world. This is a cool thought. When Jesus comes back, he's not going, this is my land right here, this little piece of property called the promised land. He goes, this whole world is mine. This whole universe is mine. And if you're a, f- a follower of Christ, he says, blessed are you because you're going to inherit the earth. This is what we have to look forward to. Heirs of the whole world. Heirs of this wonderful new kingdom of God where the new heavens and new earth are here and it's all as a gift by God's grace. So there's just one last thing that Paul has to do now. He says, look, I showed you that people are saved in the Old Testament as sinners by faith, Abraham and David. Now I showed you that it's equally available by grace to Jews and Gentiles. But the last thing he wants to do is he wants to say this. Old Testament justification by faith is very similar to New Testament justification by faith. Abraham's faith is very similar to our faith. Because what he has to do here, and I think this is important, is he has to talk about what is faith? What is the nature of biblical faith? 
Because unfortunately, especially in our culture, the word believe has a very different connotation than what God means in the Bible. In other words, if I were to ask you this morning, do you believe in George Washington? I think most of us would say, yeah, I, I, I believe there was a guy named George Washington. If I said, do you believe there's a tooth fairy? Now we're probably at about 50% of you, you know, so we're kind of narrowing it down. All right, there we go, see? So there you go, we've got some believers there, right? So, so what people think in America, that's a good call there. So if people, if people think in America that you get to heaven by believing in Jesus, right? All they mean by that is that I intellectually assent to the idea that there was a guy named Jesus. So young people, when, when your parents tell you don't marry an unbeliever and you go, oh, mom, don't worry, they believe in Jesus, that doesn't mean anything to, to, to most people because believing in Jesus just means, yeah, I believe there was a guy named Jesus. So what Paul wants to do here is he says, I want you to see what biblical faith is. What does it mean to believe in the Lord and to get right with God through faith? And so he's going to talk about the nature of biblical faith. And this is important because you have to ask, what's your faith? Do you think you're going to go to heaven because you believe there was a guy named Jesus? The Bible says the devil believes that. So biblical faith is not just believing that there's a God. It's believing God, believing what he promised, trusting him, and then doing what he says as a result of that. So let's look at verse 17, where we're going to look at Abram's faith. And then Paul's going to say, really, that, that's similar to New Testament faith. He says in verse 17, as it is written, God said, a father of many nations, I have made you. In the presence of God, whom he believed. You go, okay, he believed. Well, what does that mean? He just admitted there was a God? No, he believed in this God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. So biblical faith is not just, oh, I believe there's a God, right? But first of all, you're believing things about God. Now, Abraham believed several things about God. He believed that he gives life to the dead and that God calls into being that which does not exist. Now, when you first read that, you go, oh, he's probably talking about creation. He's probably thinking back to when there was nothing, and then God said, let there be. But I don't think that's what he's talking about here. You see, biblical faith is always a response to God's words, right? You can't have faith in God and his promise until he speaks something. So biblical faith is to, is to trust that what God says is true and I'm going to stake my life on his promise, and I'm going to respond to him appropriately because I believe what he said. So when the Bible says he believes that God gives life to the dead, what he's referring to, he's going to tell us in a couple verses that when Abraham was 100 years old, God had told him, you're going to have a son. And the Bible says he considered that his body was dead. Like as far as reproduction, dead. And then it says, he considered that his wife's womb was dead, right? So as far as the possibility of them having kids, there's no way. But because God promised it, he believed that God was going to give life to the dead. Secondly, God had promised him, you're going to have so many descendants that they're more than the sand on the seashore. And he's going, well, I don't even have one. So he had to believe that God could call into being what doesn't exist. So in spite of all the circumstances, there ain't no way a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman 
are going to conceive and have kids. And the night he's undressing, putting his pajamas on, looking over at Sarah, it says he considered that he was an old man dead. But because God promised it. Look what verse 18 says. In hope against hope. He believed. Now the Bible says so that this translation he might become the father. I, I, I don't think that's a good translation. It should be translated with the result that. He didn't believe it because he goes, if I believe this, I, I get to be the father. No. He believed with the result that he became the father of many nations. Okay? But notice what biblical faith is. In hope against hope. In the Bible, hope and faith are very, very similar, but they're not quite the same thing. Hope is always looking to the future. You never Biblical hope is never in the past. You don't go... Oh, I, I hope um, when I'm uh, 10 years old. It's too late. Hope is always looking to the future, right? So God had told Abraham, you're going to have kids, and there's going to be more than the sand on the seashore. So against hope, when, when it looked absolutely impossible, in hope, he, he, he looked to the future with confidence, and he believed that what God said is going to happen, that God can give life to the dead, that God is going to bring about a conception in my wife's womb and many descendants, even though I don't know how he's going to do it. So look what we're learning about biblical faith. It's robust. It's rich. It's based on God's promises, and it doesn't let our feelings and our circumstances go, this can't happen. In fact, let's keep reading. Look, look what else Paul says about true biblical Christian faith. Without becoming weak in faith... He contemplated his own body. Now, frankly, that should have caused him to become weak in faith because his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief. Now, you know what's remarkable about that? I argued with Paul. You know why? I'm going... He didn't become weak in faith and he didn't waver in unbelief, hey, Paul, you better go back and read Genesis again. Because my Bible says in Genesis 16 that because he didn't have a kid, remember when we studied through Genesis? He's, he and his wife said, well, let me just uh, have a kid through my servant. That was wavering in unbelief. My Bible says that he was afraid that he was going to be killed when he went down to Egypt, so he lied, and, and, and he said, hey, she's my sister. So I was like, wait a minute. He did waver in unbelief. He, he did become weak in faith. How come the Bible says he didn't? And as I was studying, I found Thomas Schreiner's very interesting conclusion. Because prior to reading this this week, I was like, I don't, I don't know how to reconcile that. I thought he did doubt. But Schreiner said something that I think is really, really helpful. He says, it doesn't mean when it says he didn't waver that he didn't have flaws. It doesn't mean that he didn't have some bumps in the road, right? But what it does mean is that the basic trajectory, the basic direction of Abram's life, the basic pattern of the way that he lived his life was that he trusted God and did what God asked him to do. And you know, that really encourages me because I'm like, you mean I can't have one time in my life where I go through doubts? I can't have one time in my life where I argue with God or I'm mad, sad, or feel had, or I'm disillusioned, or I'm beginning to wonder if he's going to do what he said. And the answer is, of course, we're going to have that happen. But what's the basic trajectory of your life? 
Do you freak out? Everything, something doesn't go the way you thought. You're like, God, how are you going to provide for me if I just lost my job? And God, I just start following you, and now you're going to let me find out that my kid is sick? And God, if you knew that this person, I prayed for years to find a godly spouse, and now I get them. And there are many things that happen in our lives that, that Satan wants you to go, I don't think God cares. I don't think God's going to do what he said. And you and I are challenged to do one of two things. We can waver in unbelief. We can become weak in faith. We can walk away from God and say, it doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, I hear people talking about Jesus helping them with their addictions, but it doesn't work. And I'm going, really? It doesn't work? So because you didn't immediately get delivered from your addiction, I guess God's promises aren't true. He was only kidding when he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He was just teasing when he said, I will provide for all of your needs. When he said, train up a child in the way he should go, except for you. And, and I'm, not, I'm not beating you up because I, I, I feel the same pain you do. And that is, there's times where you're going, God, everything going on in my life does not feel at all like you're doing what you promised. But you see, that's where biblical faith comes in. My wife shared a quote with me this morning from a book she's reading. I love this quote. She says, everyone wants to see God do a miracle, right? Isn't that cool? I want to be there when God does a miracle. But nobody wants to be in circumstances that require a miracle. And I'm like, yeah. Because oftentimes when we need a miracle, it's because we're in a bad place. And Abraham was in a place of going, how in the world am I going to have kids? It's impossible. But because God promised it, what did he do? He, look at verse 20. He grew strong in faith. And that's what God wants you and me to do. He wants us to grow stronger so that whatever junk Satan throws at us, we don't walk away from God. We don't give up on God. We don't go, this stuff doesn't work. We go, you know what, God? I don't understand what's going on. But if you said it in the Bible, I'm going to trust you. Because you know what happens? Every time we trust God's promises, the Bible says, you give glory to God. You, you, you please God. See, Romans chapter 1, what did the Bible say about unbelievers? They're not thankful and they don't give glory to God. But when we come to Jesus and we tell people, hey, I believe that Jesus is my Lord and Savior who died for me. He's my only hope of going to heaven. When my friend said to me, you need Jesus for a crutch. And I go, no, I, I need him for a stretcher. I give God all the glory. I depend on God. I love Jesus. I'm a follower of Christ. He has forgiven me by his grace. And when bad things happen and we still praise him, we're giving glory to God. And you're going, well, how do you do that? I, I, I just, I'm so worried. Well, look at verse 21. Abraham was fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform it. Now, if you get that verse right now, you and I ought to be going, oh, so wait, I, I, don't, have to, I don't have to figure it out. I don't have to solve this. No. I rest in God's promises. You've heard me tell this illustration, but I love it so much I'm going to tell it again because some of you may not have heard it. See, when, when you get to know the God of the Bible and the Jesus of the Bible and you, and you find out how he loved you and he died for you, you begin to realize he's a wonderful, awesome God and a wonderful Savior who will never leave me, who will never disappoint me. He'll do what he said. So I remember hearing a story of a little boy who fell off of his dock down in Florida. He and his little sister were playing on the dock. 
in Florida. And if you've ever been to Florida, in those lakes, they're like green and murky, full of snakes and gators, right? And you're like, ooh, I'm not going in there, right? So the little boy fell off the end of the dock. Dad was cutting the grass, and he was behind the house. So when he fell off the dock, and I've seen this happen. I saw a child fall off a dock and not come up. Somebody dove in and found him down there, right? But this little boy, when he fell off the dock, he didn't come up. And his little sister panicked. She didn't know what to do. So she ran around behind the house, and she, and she grabbed her dad. She said, Billy fell off the dock. And the dad comes running around the edge of the dock, and there's nothing but green water. So the dad immediately jumps in, and he's just fishing around trying to find his son and pull him up, and he can't find him. But he bumps against the pylon, and he feels his kid underwater holding the dock like this, right? And so he pries him off of the dock. He pulls him out of the water. Little boy bursts, <sighs> gets a gasp of air. He puts him up on the dock, and after he settles him down, he says, Billy, what were you thinking? What were you thinking? You're just under there holding that pole in dark, murky water. What were you thinking? He goes, I was waiting for you, Dad. And isn't that really what biblical faith is? You're going, God, I'm in a mur- I, I don't. But you promised. I'm waiting for you, God. And I'm fully assured that what you promised, you're going to perform it. Now, the first entry point for you and me, the first expression of that faith is trusting God as your Savior. But it doesn't stop there. And so those of you who are already believers, you don't go, oh, I already did that. I already trusted God to save me. See, now we're learning to trust God for everything. And we're learning that everything in life goes back to the gospel. And I rely on him, and I bow before him, and I praise him, and I want to grow strong in my faith. And I want my children and my grandchildren and my friends and neighbors and loved ones to embrace this same gospel of grace because it's available to all. But for some of you, you need to hear the end of this passage, particularly as it relates to how to start a relationship with God. Because some of you are not sure. Well, can I know? You were told you can't know if you're going to heaven. But the Bible actually teaches quite the opposite. And I hope that all of you, saved or not saved, will find the end of this passage to be remarkably comforting and something to bless the Lord for. Paul says, yeah, well, that was Abraham's faith. But now let me talk to you who are Christians. He says, when God wrote that in the Old Testament, verse 22, therefore it was credited to him for righteousness, it was not just for Abraham's sake or Moses' sake, it was written that it was credited to him, but for our sake. Well, what do you mean for my sake? It, it's the same God, and for you, by faith in Christ, righteousness will be credited to you because you believe in him who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. You follow what Paul's saying? He's saying, Abraham believed that God would bring life out of the deadness of his womb. And he was credited with righteousness. God wants you and me to believe that he brought the dead Lord Jesus, who died for our sins, out of the tomb. And he'll credit it to you for righteousness. He who was delivered up because of my transgressions. Do you believe that? Do you believe today that you can be completely forgiven once and for all because Christ went on that cross for you? Do you believe that after three days, and he was put in the ground that God gloriously and powerfully brought him out of the grave and took him back up to heaven. And he's sitting at the right hand of God waiting to return. Do you believe that? The Bible says if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You believe he was delivered for your sins and God raised him from the dead. The Bible says you will be saved. But then it says this. For with the heart we believe, but with the mouth we confess. 
And so frequently at the end of the service, you'll hear me ask, is there anyone here who says, you know what, God spoke to me and I get it now. And I do believe and I'm going to stop living a life of sin or I'm going to stop trusting in my religion and I'm going to turn and I'm going to trust in Jesus alone today. Well, the Bible doesn't say keep that a little secret. Just keep it on the low down. Don't tell nobody. So when I give an invitation, sometimes people go like this. The Bible says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart and you shall be saved. And so this morning I ask you, don't worry about whether you, what you used to believe. Do you believe that this morning? That Christ paid it all. And that Christ by his grace has completely forgiven you. And if you do, I want to encourage you to confess it with your mouth. Last week, there were five people in the second service who, who made that profession. One of them I had lunch with. He said, well, I was baptized when I was a little kid. I said, yeah, but you weren't a believer. He says, well, then put me down for the next baptism. Does that sound like you? Are you willing to say, hey, count me in. I believe. And the moment you believe, you'll be saved. And the rest of us were going, man, I'm trying to make my way on in my journey of life. And God's going, yeah, learn from Abraham. He trusted me. Do you trust me? Will you give me glory no matter what you're going through? Will you disciple your children? Will we continue to pray and trust God to do remarkable things in our midst? I'm asking. Can I get an amen? Yeah, yeah. You're like, yeah, Brother Allen, yeah, yeah. Matter of fact, we have a a new believer's study that's just started on Tuesday nights. If you're like, you know, I do believe. I'd like to get into a new believer's study. Let us know. If you have any questions, let us know. But by all means... Let's recommit ourselves to the gospel of the grace of God and give Jesus all the glory. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for this wonderful message that we are justified by grace through faith as a gift. It's not by our works. It's through the cross. We give you all the glory. We thank you that it's all about Jesus. We thank you that we can rest that in our account, You have already credited forgiveness. You have credited righteousness. And therefore, our souls are secure until the Lord returns. But Lord, help us to live by faith as we meet many obstacles and temptations and things that Satan wants us to believe we can't ever survive. May our faith grow strong. Help me, Lord. Keep us from the evil one. Help us trust you in every circumstance as we learn what it means to believe God and give you glory. We thank you so much for your precious promises and for what you're doing in the body of Christ. We give Jesus all the glory and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.